Do you think I loved the year 1941? I hated her. I might as well just keep the first one where you dig a hole and die in it. No. It's funnier. No. Don't do it. I'm, I'm going to. A devil woman. Just, I feel like if you're going to personify the year World War II breaks out. As a when woman, I met the year 1941, she promised me that she would be the perfect wife. And she was, but she was also cruel and malicious. In vague ways, I in, won't explain. In vague, in vague, in the most vaguest, least appreciable terms. Trust me, she was a terrible person. We will never give evidence as to how she was bad, but know that she was, and I hated her. Nineteen forty-one. I had the year inscribed on this handkerchief, which I will now give you, <laughs> unnamed woman. We're getting ahead of ourselves. I am cutting this. Okay. There, now you have to use the first one. Fuck. <laughs> so what happened in 1941? It's um, a pretty busy year. It's, it's, it's bustling. Mm -hmm. One for the history books, some would say. One might say. As I'm sure we're all aware, World War II is happening. It's ongoing. It is ongoing. a current event. Using Dr. Charles Drew's idea, the American Red Cross decided to set up blood donor stations to collect plasma for the U.S. arm for the U.S. armed forces. There's a Sawbones episode about this, isn't there? There is. Oh, it's really sad. Yeah. Another fun fact: something else that happened in 1941 is that Hollywood actress Hedy Lamarr invented the basis for modern Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. Huh. Uh, she was working as a radio operator at the time and just uh, has a lot of patents that basically just led to those two technologies. That's right. In term, uh, for I think shortwave transmissions, I think also helped with like the invention of like the remote control and stuff. That's very cool. Yeah. Didn't know about that. Hedy Lamar is a cool person. Yeah. What else happened in 1941? Rebecca won Best Picture in the Oscars. What? Hello, I'm your critic, Mavis Evergreen. I'm here to talk about narrative and perceptions and society. And uh, feminism and stuff. Yeah. My name is Andres Reyes. I'm going to be talking a little bit about Hollywood history. Uh, I'm going to be talking a lot about actors and directors and influences in film and cinema. And I'm also going to be talking a little bit about minorities when I can. This movie is another one in which there's just scant a minority to be found. Not even a pepper. Not even. Yeah. Um, I think the closest we get is we get like a Mediterranean priest, which is not much but um try to talk about how minority representation in cinema as well as kind of socialist issues and how they pertain to our modern day do you want to do you want to just off the cuff oh. give us a summary this is yeah this is going to be the easiest one ever right okay in the beautiful island of morocco old bachelor maxim de winters meets an unnamed woman and decides that they should fall in love and be married so they do they move to his house where she is haunted by weird maids and handkerchiefs and the specter of Maxim de Winter's dearly departed Rebecca. Over the course of the film, our heroine discovers that she has no spine and Maxim is kind of a weird, sad dude. Slut. Slut. Yeah, I didn't write a summary for this one. But to be honest, I think we're going to be talking about this movie a lot just as a movie. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about Alfred Hitchcock, who started his career doing serials, kind of what would later become the modern television show. 
considered a more vulgar form of cinema. Serials were fast, cheap, often used the same sets. And the fact that he was able to kind of move from that space into the contemporary film space, I think is a testament to his eye as a creator and also his his belief in the art of camera work. Like he was a firm believer in making a movie not just through cinematography, but also through editing. And we see a lot of that in this movie. This movie is functionally three different genres at once. It's a, it's a horror movie. It's a legal drama. And it's kind of a love story. And the weakest of those is the love story, obviously. Alfred Hitchcock was not a romantic person. But how adept he is at moving between those modes, I think, is really interesting. And also, this is like the most stark use of character placement and shadows I have seen in a movie thus far. Like, this is really like noir-ass noir cinema. I mean, Alfred Hitchcock is known as like a slick director. And I think this movie is the best directed movie we've seen so far. Absolutely. Like, cuts have meanings. Framing actually serves a purpose. I do think this movie is significantly helped by the fact that it is based on a book written by a woman, I think it really helps shave off the Hitchcockian edges you normally get from his writing. I mean, the screenplay was partially written by a woman as well, so it retained, I think, that edge. Not so, to say that all of it is flawless. But. It's a two-hour movie, and it goes down like it's 90 minutes. It is genuinely... There is no point in this movie where I was like, oh my god, we have an hour left. If anything, I was pleasantly surprised. I was like, oh my gosh, I thought we only had like 30 minutes left, but we have a whole hour's worth of movie left. I'm so excited. This is a lean movie. Mm-hmm. It really only keeps what it has to keep. And I think that also really helps with the mystery of it. There's not a lot of superfluous time spent where it's like, ah, I've, I've figured it out because you've done this shot six times or mm-hmm. because you've hinted at this a number of times. It's so competent for an old, a really old black and white movie gorgeous it's not pretty because it's expensive it's pretty because the person shooting these shots is competent at shooting shots you can tell hitchcock really thought about how things would look in black and white a thing that i don't think people really thought about before color happened and then after that if you were going to direct a movie in black and white one it was less expensive but two make the black and white purposeful because like color was an option now i think it kind of makes sense that we're still going to be seeing black and white movies well into the 60s and a lot of there were a lot of directors i think andre tarkovsky is one of them who thought that color was just a fad like oh color's not gonna stick because it's too lazy it's too easy to make something colorful and like oh it's analogous to real life black and white is like true art I don't necessarily agree with that, but I do think that, like, the appreciation for black and white, like you said, comes from the fact that these, like, really expensive films are coming out in color. Yeah. I kind of want to talk about this movie chronologically because it is sort of three distinctly separate moods. Yeah. Let's talk about romance. This is a very classic romance story, although I do think it is doing very interesting things. But our main character follows, like, an archetype that comes in and out of favor with books but they are essentially just a Bella Swan. The yeah. idea of like They're she a, could be you. An XP. A kind of a wayfish person. I don't know what XP means. Like a an avatar. What is XP from? It's just it's a word, E X P Y. I don't know about that. 
sorry. Are um, you using your your finagled internet terms? No, no, no. Avatar is an internet term, but no, no, no. Um, all right, let me look it up. Okay, it, this is fandom slang. Yeah, I thought so. I fucking knew it. Uh, I was like, XP is not a is not a character a in a work of fiction who is a stand-in or knockoff of a character from an unrelated work or of a real person. I can't believe you just outed yourself like that. Um, I think it's a good word, first of all. But yeah, basically a copy, a copy pasta. This is a it's a character it's a character trip that we see a lot of. We still see a lot of. However, I do think they are doing something like genuinely interesting with. With the wayfish useless person, as much as I do find it to be slightly grating, let's um, let's address the elephant in the room because otherwise it's going to be impossible to have this conversation. Okay, we have no idea what this character's name is at all. We don't know her first name. We don't know her fucking last name. Like she's the narrator, and I think we will be referring to her as such. Sure. Because we keep just using she, her, and. We're going to be talking about other women characters, and so it's going to become hard really quickly. Fair. I do think it is incredibly clever that the narrator never gets a name. The central crux of the romance is set up by the idea that this woman has the spine of a chocolate eclair and has been led around in her life by a lot of strong figures. Her boss is a very strong, loud woman. Uh, This man is also a very strong kind of not loud in the same way, but very like confident man. He's rich. He's a rich kid. So he has that arrogance and ownership of the world that like rich people have. And she's never really been able to stand up for herself. And this comes into a screeching problem when we find out that Mams, what's yeah, his name? Maxim. We Max. find out Maxim's wife, Rebecca, is exactly the kind of person the narrator would like to be a beautiful strong elegant wise any positive term you can throw at them woman and the knowledge of like that is so antithesis to who i am because i am demure cardboard mm-hmm. <laughs> the number of times mm-hmm. in this movie that a character talks to her and it's just like now listen here narrator i know that you're ugly and stupid but don't think about those things. Just be who you are. And I'm just like... Just know that Maxim loves you for being yeah, stupid cardboard. Yeah, for being ugly and stupid. And it's so... One, it's so insulting to Joan Fontaine, who is like just your traditionally Attractive, Hollywood beautiful yeah. woman. But dude, just the fact that they keep repeating it is so insulting. Like, don't bring it... You know you could just not bring it up. It is a very interesting thing to do uh, with this character, though. And I do think... It brings up a lot of like self-representation and how do you stand up for yourself, which are all interesting questions to be asking specifically in 1941, like we still, Mm -hmm. but especially in the past of a lot of social pressures as a woman, what you should be like as a woman and things Mm -hmm. like that. So I think this is a lovely thing to interrogate. And I think, you know, as much as we all want to be strong, loud, confident, brazen, smart women, sometimes you're awkward and clumsy. I think it is fine to have characters that are those and to interrogate how it feels and the negative emotions that come along with that. However, <laughs> yeah, there's a big there's a big catch 22 with how this book handles this. Yeah, the problem is twofold. I'm going to say like 1 and 1A B fold. Yeah. So let's um, start with 1A. So 1A is that she is infantilized constantly. What makes her hot is her naivete. Oh god, sorry. I need to find a quote. There's one really bad one. Um, one of the things that like Maxim tells her is like, "You, I hope you never grow up. I hope you're never 35. It's 36. 36 yeah, or whatever. It's wild. And it's just like, 
And he keeps saying that, and it's just like... Really focusing on the beauty of her youth. At one point, he's like, it's a pity I'll have to grow up. It's like, stop it. Stop Stop this. This is insanity. It doesn't help that we don't know how old she is. No. Part of the thing is we don't know anything about her, which I do think is kind of poetic and great, and we are no different than any of the other people in her life who don't know her, Mm -hmm. in part because she doesn't allow us to know her because she never speaks up for herself it's not in like a victim blamey way i don't think but it is an interesting thing to bring up and i like the interrogation of it uh however i do think this book falls too far on the side of no makeup women innocent naive youthful women are what you should be and they're what you should aspire to be and they are what is good and virginal and as to eden and these complicated sophisticated women are actually evil uh, they're the devil they're quite literally the devil and they deserve to die and they're just sadistic freaks which is a shame really if you isolate this movie from the larger gender conversation that it's having there's a really interesting story there between these two women yeah the problem is that, and we'll get into that later. But like the big problem is that you can't you can't separate it from this larger gender conversation, and the fact that it chooses sides in a way that mm-hmm. makes it impossible to come to any conclusion other than any woman that like wears makeup or it wants to have any form of like self confidence or self um what's sort of for self actualization to be an independent person mm-hmm. is evil and uh, deserves to die. And only women who are demure and quiet and stay in their place are, are good and pure. And, and support their man. Yeah, it is just a mar on this. Although I do think, I don't know, part of me is like, I think it is still an interesting question. But the other part of me is like, it's very catty. Like, it's a very catty story. I can feel the female writer being like, I hate these rich bitches. Yeah, and it's... And I get it. But also, it's, you're mad about the wrong things. Yeah. It's not a focus yeah. of the story until. until it's the only thing that matters. And you're just like, God, I wish I could enjoy this more. But uh. a lot of this movie is so good. And especially the focus of like being haunted by this like bigger figure, which is a very, I think, no matter who you are, like very relatable emotion to have. The idea of one, if your partner has ever had like another partner, very easy to like compare yourself to that. But even larger than that, right? Like in society, we are constantly being compared to people who are better, smarter, prettier, whatever than us. Mm -hmm. If it's through magazines or academia or whatever, right? Like it is impossible to avoid comparison. Yeah. And so I do think a movie focusing on like a very direct comparison and the idea of like what this person needs to do is not care about it because nobody else cares about it except for one person. But the idea in the movie really focuses on the fact that everyone's really supportive of her and she is the person who keeps dragging herself down. Yeah, I mean, I do, I kind of disagree. I do think that it does matter. I think everyone is comparing her, right? I mean, how can you not? The movie is taking the side that like they can't help it because she's not asserting herself. Yeah. It's again, this it's a weird catch 22, right? Where the thing she needs to do is assert herself as as a fully fledged human being. But also only evil women do that. It's just yeah. like what's what's going on? Like what do you actually want? And I think this is a this is a contradiction that I think the author never really overcomes because because she doesn't have to because uh, the the book and the movie 
change Take a sudden twist. yeah ta- change genres and so she doesn't have to address it right but like the contradiction of wanting to be this wanting to be a powerful independent perceived by everyone around you as being a self-actualized competent human being and the insecurity of not being seen of those not way, being which seen is what like the that. first half of the story is about and let's talk about this now i guess since Sorry. we're here which is this is the most interesting haunted house story <laughs> that i've seen in a long time i really wanted to like house on haunted hill haunted hill house haunted yeah. hill house that the show that one i really liked i think the first two episodes and i think it lost it was itself really after that a lot of problems we're gonna do a second podcast about the show episode by episode but it made me not want to watch the follow-up series because of all those problems because yeah. i think because part of it is to me is that fundamentally that show did not do anything interesting with the concept of like what it means for a place to be haunted this movie never veers into the supernatural at all it, but throughout the whole first act, you're like, is she is she gonna fucking pop up? Yeah, the movie does a fucking brilliant job of showing you exactly how much Rebecca's influence is surrounding this house. Nowhere you go, nothing you do. Every napkin embroidered pillow and every freaking shelf has every piece has of Rebecca's stationary name carved into it. It's so effective, right? Like to yeah. the point where there is a jump scare in this movie that is just the letter R. And you're just and you're like, oh my god, the letter R. <laughs> it's it's effective. And like and and the point of it, it's scary because of how it's shot, right? And yeah. because of how like Alfred Hitchcock has a very good depth eye for like how to frame things in a way where like They are ominous. They are ominous and like the main character. You don't know who this person is. But you also cannot escape it along with them. And you also don't know what happened to them. Other than they drowned in an accident. But like everything is so mysterious and so obfuscated for reasons that are, I think, are very interesting. She's just left with this dread of like, how could I ever hope to supplant this person? So there is a thing that I think is potentially good, but undermines itself in the end, which is, I, I would say, like this movie's biggest problem. This has a lot of really good ideas that kind of undermine themselves. Yeah. But. Maxim, he's really hot and cold. In a moment of coldness when they're like, oh, we're in love now before we go to the house. He's like, I loving you is selfish. It's a selfish thing for me to do. And you you get into this world and it's like, oh, you haven't like dealt with all of this Rebecca nonsense. It's haunting your house. She's still everywhere. This was selfish of you because you haven't like dealt with these emotions yet and you're bringing in a new person. It's like, this might be the kind of most basic relationship advice you can give, but you got to deal with your baggage, man. And he just left it all over this fucking house. And then you find out later, that's not why he thought this was selfish. And it's like, what the fuck? Like, this was initially very interesting. Like, the understanding of like, oh, I'm doing a selfish thing, but also I am genuinely in love with you and I don't want to let you go because you're the first person I've like loved since my wife. And then the end of this movie undermines all of that. And you're like, well, that's now he's just a shallow, bad communicator. This is uh, indicative of, I think, the kind of schlockiness that Hitchcock is playing in. Mm-hmm. Hitchcock doesn't need these things to make sense because it's a different we're in a different part of the movie now. That yeah. part doesn't matter. And Hitchcock is a very big believer, in my opinion, of um, continuity doesn't matter. <laughs> narrative or narrative continuity doesn't matter. All that matters is getting the emotion out of the viewer, which he does. He does it very well. Very evocative. But 
it does give you that moment of like, oh, I'm thinking back on the events of this movie. Uh, actually, a lot of this doesn't make sense. <laughs> why didn't he just throw this stuff away? Like, why is this stuff still here? And you, you could probably do like a four hour fucking like deep dive into like, you know. What does it actually mean that but, he didn't throw away all of the R's? But the reality is, is that it's, it's because they needed to be there for the haunted house part of the movie. And it doesn't matter that they kind of conflict with the legal drama part of the movie. And that's it, right? It's like Alfred Hitchcock didn't think he needed to explain it or deal with it. I kind of get it because it on would be... On one hand, I do get it, and I do think this movie's very evocative. But on the other hand, when you have like seven be... twists in your movie, yeah. it does kind of make the earlier part of your movie feel like it didn't matter. Yeah. And on one hand... Every twist did get me. I was like, oh my God. Yeah, but real now that schlocky. I'm looking back, I'm like, oh, I'm enjoying this less in the remembrance than I did when I watched it. Because I had a great time when I watched it. Now that I'm like talking about it, I'm like, God, maybe this movie isn't I'm, as good as I thought it was. I'm definitely cooling on it for sure. I do think that, I think it's an effective piece of like entertainment. The distinct parts of it are good. But yeah, as a whole, it's definitely a lot weaker. I want to talk a little bit about Max. Played by the grandiose, a little hammy, Laurence Olivier, who I I like. I love Laurence Olivier. He's a Shakespearean actor. Did a lot of stage work before and after this. Spent a lot of his life trying to just make Shakespeare movies, one of which we're going to watch. His portrayal of Max is, it's very Edward Cullen. He's... <laughs> I, get, I do think this movie <laughs> honestly has a lot in common with Twilight. Absolutely. He's just like a haunted dude who walks around. He would honestly be a good Edward Cullen because he spends this whole movie just like pouting and being like, no, I can't love you, but I want to love you, but I can't. I'm so in love with you, but I, oh my gosh, you're going to fall out of love with me when you turn 36. Once you, you're going to find out the kind of the kind of monster I am. Literally. And it's just like, fuck off, dude. We get it. You're mysterious and you're haunted and you're sad all the time. I would prefer and you if have you anger were actually issues. a vampire. Yeah, it would have been. Honestly, I was kind of expecting him to just be like, I have something to tell you. How long have you been 37? <laughs> 200 years, right? Like something yeah. like that. Like, oh, man, what a twist would that be, right? If it turns out he was actually 100 and Rebecca died like 100 years ago. Oh, my God. It would be very good. Oh, man, it would make the the costume ball. So Now we're just oh, writing yeah. Rebecca fan fiction. It's true. The point that I'm trying to make is that like, I bet this guy was a heartthrob for sure. And I know he was. I, who am I kidding? I know Lawrence Olivier was a heartthrob. I find it very interesting that we're still kind of obsessed with this kind of dude in fiction, right? Like, And I, I shouldn't say dude. This type of character, because we're starting to see, I think, more feminine and androgynous versions of these characters. I mean, part of the appeal of these characters is their androgynity. The, the fact that they are... Tell me more about your... Andro- can I take your androgynity? <laughs> Um, I, that's not a real word, but yeah, part of the appeal of these characters in the masculine form is mm-hmm. that their femininity when it comes to certain emotions. I definitely agree and I with think, you. It is the, how much they're feeling. Yeah. And they're how just, strongly they're, they're feeling, feeling those again. feelings so fucking strong though. And <laughs> we're, we're starting to see that character being explored more in like queer spaces. And I think that's really great. But the fact that we're still obsessed with it, I think is, is kind of indicative to the kind of, um, the kind of romances people as like a general public like to read haven't really changed the fact that this movie is doing it in kind of as a setup to a horror like a haunted house movie and then later a legal drama brings his performance back to a place where i'm like okay this is fun but at first it's 
grating. You just you want him to get over his dick. Get oh, over it. Oh damn! What did you trip over? My dick. My, my dick. I get what you're saying. Do I think, do think. Do you think I loved my dick? I hated her. <laughs> <laughs> I do get what you're saying. When we are introduced to him, you don't quite have a reason to love him. And I do think the reason you fall in love with him is because he's rich. Like, that's what's appealing about <laughs> yeah. him, which is a shame. I do wish he had something more. And I will say, even Edward had something more. I'm pretty sure he was, like, <laughs> he, nice to her. He No, he recites Shakespeare at one point, right? He knows Romeo and Juliet. Isn't that, like, a big thing in the movie? I just, I feel like Edward had, like, attributes that were, like, mm-hmm. hot outside of, like, him physically being hot. I, not, you just said one. Not in the mood. Not really. Like, I yes, I just gave an example, but no. That like I've seen the movie. I've seen the movie five times. <laughs> Anyways, I just as I of this recording, not he Edward not as grating, um, no, because he is yeah. mostly in love and then he is cold, whereas this guy is like initially cold and then in love and then cold again. Also, the power dynamics are kind of gross because he is like. In, in this movie, not in Edward's movie, is like ultra wealthy and taking her away. And she has like no support system to fall back on. She's like an orphan child a million miles away from anyone who could help her. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas like, I, I mean, don't know. Ed- Bella has a dad, you know? There there are, there are I think the, the power dynamic issues are are more egregious because this movie is so firmly footed in reality. That's right? fair. As opposed, like, I think if you were to like make a T chart, I think Edward's power dynamics would be just as bad. But because a lot of them come from fictional places, you can just be like, "Well, vampires aren't real. He's just a weird teenager who, you know, sneaks into her bedroom I just sometimes." Feel like anyone could kill you. He's just so actually three hundred years old. That far. Yeah. No, I get what you're saying, and I I kind of agree. I think that the the thing that we learned is that this kind of character needs to shut the fuck up. <laughs> they just need to be silent. Like right, like I um, get you. he talks so much, and so much of what he says is like, is Aren't just. Are you a beautiful little baby girl right out of the crib? Oh yes, you are. I'm asking you to marry me, you little fool. Like oh, he treats yeah. her, he treats her like such a child, and that part of that's part of why he likes her, and it's gross. gross. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm actually 300 years I'm old. I'm actually 300 years old. That is the kind of tone he has. He has like the worst parts of vampire, like. I like you Rich, because you're a baby aristocratic. and I'm 500. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, uh, Edward's the comparison now because uh, it's this movie's basically Twilight. Um, you heard it here first. Rebecca is just as good as Twilight. You know, maybe not as good as Twilight. I think they're... No, I would say Rebecca is just as good as Twilight. Like, they're both good sources of entertainment. I honestly think Rebecca shot better, but you know. No, like, I disagree. I think that first Twilight movie is a really gorgeously shot film. That's because it's, it's in color. You're just buying into the <laughs> I'm just hype. Lazy. So I'm just being lazy. Um, part of Max's problem is his anger issues. Like he is a person who, th- over the course of the movie, you find out that he is easy to anger, and other characters talk about this in like a in like a oh it's just him being a child kind of way. Mm-hmm. But when you're the only person in his life that he reacts that way to. It kind of becomes problematic really fast. Adds to the haunted house aspect of the movie, right? Like, this is a person who is in an unfamiliar place with the person who's potentially unstable. Mm -hmm. But once we get to the legal drama aspect of it, it doesn't make sense because he stops acting that way to her completely. Also. He learns his lesson within the span of, like, two minutes. 
within the legal drama, though, it is also made, like, much worse. Oh, yeah. Because he does kill his ex-wife. Well, that is concerning. Not because it's necessarily morally wrong of him to do this, which I do think is interesting, but because of the the loss of control. I can separate the idea of, like, I think it was not necessarily morally wrong of him to kill his wife, which is fun and an interesting thing to say, an interesting thing to bring up this movie. However, what is wrong is losing control of yourself to the point that you would murder someone. Yeah. Like, that is that is still terrifying, and that is made worse by the fact that it is like, well, that did lead to someone's death, even if I don't think morally that person dying was a bad thing. Mm-hmm. I gosh, the that's the big twist. The the big twist of there the movie. There are like seven tiny twists, but this is the this big is one. the big one. This is this one happens like at the climax of the film, and this is when the movie changes from like haunted house movie to legal drama, which is the narrator goes to confront Max yeah. and Rebecca's bow cabin because during the course of this costume party, which we didn't really talk about. But we will when we talk when we go back to talk about the maid. They find Rebecca's boat and they find her body inside. Mm-hmm. So she goes and she's talking to Max about it, and Max confesses to her he murdered his ex-wife. This is the meat of the movie. Like if you're if you're gonna look up, you know, like top ten Rebecca scenes, I think this confession scene is like the big one. This Lawrence is really acting his heart out in this one. Mm-hmm. The, it's the only time his like weird, subdued emotion works and it's because at the end of it he's allowed to be angry about it he's like the the whole max character is that he is upset that no one else knows what he knows about rebecca which is that she sucks and is evil and she's is literally just the personification of evil she's basically the joker and uh, and he hates her but he can't everyone else in his life loves her and adores her and worships her and so he, there's no one in the world that he can express this anger to and until she he, she asks him, just tell me the truth and I will accept it. And he tells her, I fucking killed her. I fucking hated her. She ruined my life. She made me miserable. She emasculated me constantly. She was like constantly doing all of this vague evil shit. And the way in which it happens mm-hmm. is so weird. Yeah. In a way that is that makes sense later in the, the final big twist of the film, which is that he confronts her, he tells her, he brings a gun. He, he this is a, this is the weird thing is he brings a gun, he never uses it. And he brings a gun cuz he's like I'm going to catch her in the act of cheating on me and then I'm just going to kill both of these people and like be done with it cuz like I'm so miserable. Mm-hmm. He finds her alone and she says to him, "I'm pregnant and you know and it's not your child." And then he hits her and then she falls over, hits her head on like some tackle and mm-hmm. dies. And so he puts her on a boat, sinks the boat, comes back to shore, and just and no one's the wiser. Mm-hmm. This is really interesting, but there are some problems. One, we don't really ever know what Rebecca did. Yeah, it is kind of both glaring, and I get not the point, but we looked it up. Apparently the book kind of gets into it, but not really. She like whipped a horse. Yeah, once. until it bled. But yeah, she's just vaguely sadistic and evil. Mm. They get married, and like four days after their wedding, Rebecca's like, it turns out actually I'm the personification of Satan, and Mm. I love doing cruel things for fun, and you are so prideful about your family and such that you're not going to leave me because it'd be a huge mark on you because everyone else loves me. And I do think this is kind of like a repentance story about like 
this guy's pride ruining his life through the metaphor of Rebecca. And I yeah. do think that's interesting, right? The fact that, like, he kind of made himself miserable because he cared more about his family name. Than, than his about, own happiness. Than his own happiness. He was being haunted oh. by his family name. The just movie like doesn't no dwell name on this. Is being just haunted. like the narrator. Yeah. The movie doesn't dwell on this. I think it's probably a bigger thing in the book, but I don't know that. I do think it's interesting. I do think it is nice that Rebecca is kind of a comeuppance for him. She's not purely evil for the act of being evil. She is evil. She's his biblical punishment. Yeah. Like her existence as a narrative object is to punish him for being, for caring about pride and not about his own happiness. It kind of, it gives you a sense as to like what the moral outcome of this book and movie is, which is that you should care more about your happiness than things like status or society. Again, a lot of problems. So many problems. Like, like you got to be rich. You got to be demure and silent if you're a woman. You got to be rich and masculine if you're a dude. But like, again, the 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 moral purpose is that you should care about your happiness and yeah. everything else should come uh, will come with that. And the fact that he chooses pride and family status over it, she is his biblical punishment. But also, like, she's trying to choose her happiness and she's not allowed it. It's no. wild. Again, really undercuts its own message. Yeah. But yeah, so we never really know what she does. And it does kind of... You are never fully sure on, like, whether or not he's a good dude. All of the things she's accused of, except for the horse thing, which doesn't actually come up in the, in the movie, movie, are like, I mean, sounds like a chill lady. Like, I mean... Yeah, she's cheating on her husband, but, like, who wouldn't? Yeah, I mean... It just, I don't think, like, adultery is a big enough sin to kill someone over. Also, who wouldn't cheat on this fucking guy? Like, he sucks. But anyway, it's one of those things, like, none of her sins are, like, evil in the modern perception, and I don't think should have been considered evil in that perception. She doesn't even have, like, a body count. No. She's never even done one murder, so she's, Mm -hmm. like, more innocent than him. But I do think a thing that is interesting is we find out later that actually she wasn't pregnant, because obviously it would be a moral sin for him to have killed the baby. I do think the implication is he feels That's, bad over killing the child, yeah. not over killing her. Which is pointed out later when he's like, so she wasn't pregnant? Who I did no crimes. I didn't, I didn't murder, I didn't murder a fetus. Yeah. Uh, anyway. We can't talk about it, but know that this episode is being recorded in a moment. <laughs> wasn't pregnant. Actually, she had cancer and she didn't want to have a weak death. So this, she basically committed suicide through angering her husband. It is astounding to me that this movie is so dedicated to the haunted house aspect that even Rebecca is the most interesting character in the film and you never see her. You never see her once. All you know about her are the things that the every other character says about her or the look on their face when they talk about her and it is incredibly interesting and it's so and she is so fucking interesting she was diagnosed with cancer and she not only lied about it to her husband but the guy she was cheating on him with and her maid who was obsessed with her because she knew this is gonna be the last thing i do to fuck with him i'm gonna frame him for murder and i'm gonna die looking like a fucking chad hell yeah and then she laughed like the Joker, I assumed, as she died. Yeah, it's great. This would Again, be an incredibly interesting Batman story. Hard to hate her. She sounds right. She sounds so cool. Super a dick, for sure. Mm-hmm. But, like, who isn't in this movie? And it's, again, it's just a testament to this movie that, one, the book and the movie, it's named after her, Rebecca. She is the titular thing. 
and again, and it just adds more to the fact that like we have no idea who this narrator is. We don't know. We don't know anything about her other than that she's bad at drawing, but she likes doing it. It's weird to me that this just became a Columbo episode out of nowhere. <laughs> That's true. Um, I would say the one interesting thing about the legal drama portion is the fact that the detective role is handed to the guy that she was che- that Rebecca was cheating on Max with. He's like a greasy car salesman, a trope that has apparently existed since 1940. And the fact that he gets handed the like the badge to be the honorary detective when there is like a constable there the whole time, I think was a really good choice in terms of the narrative framework because one, it lets him as an actor just really like ham it up. But two, this is a character that we haven't interacted with at all. Mm -hmm. And so it's a really quick way for the movie to give him control and let you see who he is as a person. And also by association, who Rebecca is as a person mm-hmm. because this is the man that she was she actually yeah that she was choosing to be with and again like it it gives us an insight into her character that this is the dude but also that she lied to this dude so fucking hard I do think there is a a, a sadness to the fact that I think this movie goes out of its way to be like nobody really knew Rebecca everyone when they describe her describes Rebecca differently Nobody truly knew who this person was. Yeah, the one, the only thing that everybody agreed with is that she was smart and beautiful. She enters the story of mystery and she leaves it even more of a mystery. You have no sense of her at all. And with that, we can talk about... Danvers, the actress playing Danvers, such a good actress. I loved her performance. 10 out of 10, had a great time. I just, I thought like out of everyone here, Danvers' twist was so good. I did not see it coming. And when it does happen, they do such a good job of selling like person who is not living in reality anymore in such a creepy, grounded way. She is the most interesting actor in this film. Mm-hmm. Every time she is on screen, she absolutely like steals the the show. But on top of that, she is the ghost. Yeah. For all intents and purposes, right? Like because this this is again, this is a movie that's firmly rooted in reality. So we can't have like a person in a white sheet running around or something. But the tangible thing that is exerting Rebecca's influence throughout this house is Danvers. She is the thing that won't let it go. You get the sense that everyone else, including Max, understands her admiration, but not her obsession. Yeah. I genuinely get the sense that everyone is like, we get that you really respect her, but they're also willing to change in a way that she is not. She is fixed. She's rooted. For the beginning of the film, you get the sense that she's kind of testing the narrator, trying to judge her as a person. Yeah. And at first you think it's coming from a like where all of the other characters are coming from, which is a place of pity. Yeah. Like, oh, it sucks that you're in this situation. But you find out not only is this not true, the exact opposite is true, which is that she wants her initially to fill Rebecca's place and then deems her unworthy. Unworthy. And I would say this is very similar to uh, the movie Misery. Oh, yeah. This is a character whose whole trait is obsession. obsession. And so you kind of get that sense from her performance, especially towards the end of the film. But like, Mm -hmm. The moment Danvers deems the narrator to be unworthy, 
starts undermining her at every, every turn. turn. It is haunting. The scene where the narrator finally like breaks down and goes into the Rebecca's wing and Danvers just shows up and is like, I've been waiting for you. I've kept this room exactly as it was when she left it. And you're just like, it is the freakiest part of the movie. And you're just like, this is this person's dangerous. There this is, is a moment in which she's like, oh, I like embroidered this see-through dressing gown. And at first I was like, that's weird. And then I was like, oh, it is literally so that they could like non-sexually see every part of Rebecca because they wanted to know everything Everything about about Rebecca. And the only thing that they actually had control over was like what they were wearing. And I have to assume that, again, like Rebecca must have enjoyed it, the worship from in this moment like right as the narrator like and also as the audience through the eyes of the narrator like being encountered with this obsession it's such a car crash moment like where all of a sudden everything that this character has been doing throughout the entire film comes into focus and you're just your only reaction is to be scared we've spent the this entire movie following around this like sad like violence prone man and yet the scariest thing in this movie is this like calm and collected collected maid yeah it's so freaky it's such a good performance and crescendos (laughs) with the finale of this movie after max gets away with manslaughter he burns down the manor she burns down the manor because she refuses to see max move on from rebecca Mm-hmm. And the idea of like, we should stay here until Rebecca gets back or we should die. This moment when Rebecca was alive is the only moment we need and her memory should be enough. And if you can't survive off her memory, you aren't allowed to have any. Um, which is funny because he, he didn't like her. Yeah. And um, sorry, slightly undermining is surely the maid would know that? Like, was he very secretive about not liking her in his own house? I don't know. I think the only person who knew was the the greasy dude and his best friend his best friend the the bursar yeah so she burns the manor down this is this is a thing you know about this movie from the beginning of the movie that at the end of this movie this manor is going to be burned down and yet if you haven't seen this movie or listened to this podcast the way that it happens is so fucking buck wild that by the time you get there your reaction is is not oh right this was supposed to happen it's oh shit. oh my god <laughs> Yeah. She's still in the house. She's gonna go with Rebecca's things. It is very interesting and very rare to get a movie about grief that is not about how sad it is you are that someone's gone, but just about how much they ravaged you before they left. Mm-hmm. I just don't think that's a thing we often cover in cinema. And it's a shame because this is this is a very delightful time. I also think that there's kind of a difficulty. There have been a couple of attempts to redo this movie and one just direct remake that came out like a couple of years ago. But I, one, I don't think you could do this story as it is because of all the aforementioned problems with like women and how we perceive them in society as well as like the... the there are a lot of problems within the modern day just perceiving a strong independent woman as, as being, being evil. evil. I, I do still see this movie as being... And this novel is being kind of catty. Yeah. To be honest, in like a non-positive way. And a little bit too much of, I'm not like other girls. I'm not smart <laughs> or intelligent or pretty. Unlike other girls. I'm a potato. I've done I've done an internet just like you did. But yeah, 
I it's one of those things where I do think this movie is is a little Swiss cheesed with capital P problems, but I also think it is like good telling interest yeah, it's a good cheese. Telling interesting stories, asking interesting questions that the movie itself is not actually ready to answer, and filmed in a way that is delightful to watch. Would you classify this as a horror movie or as just a thriller? A thriller, I, I guess. I would classify it as a thriller for sure. I um, what I'm trying to say is like, do you think that this movie should have tried to answer those questions, or do you think it adds to the strength of the movie that ends on this like burned out? It starts and ends on this burned out house, and like I... that leaves it to you to kind of come to your own conclusions about what even all of this means. I love a movie that answers its own questions, and I also love a movie that leaves things up to interpretation sometimes. Yeah. Many a caveat with that last thing. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We just watched um, a video about it. <laughs> but I, I genuinely think this movie would be a better example of like, well, we're just asking questions and leaving this air and making you think about these things later if it didn't undermine so many of those questions. Yeah. Um, I do wish a little bit more thought was put into the continuity of narrative, mm -hmm. to be honest, um, because I think capital P problems, the weakest part of the story is that when I look back on it, I'm like, oh, these things don't actually connect. And that is a huge shame. Yeah. Because so much of this movie is so much fun to watch, even though I think it has like moral failings. Would you, do you think that this movie earned its oscar I, I i could go either way to be honest there's a part of me that is like an entertaining movie does not deserve an oscar just because a movie is fun to watch does not mean it's oscar worthy and there's another part of me that is like i genuinely think it asks some interesting questions about society and how people fit into it i just don't like its answers i I guess where I kind of sit on it is that even if it fails to answer any questions, it fails in an interesting way. Mm -hmm. And also, and I guess, and maybe a part of this is biased because part of me understands that this guy goes on to make Psycho, which is a movie that I love. Yeah. And that's a movie that I think is not ready to answer any questions, <laughs> but fails in an interesting way. I do agree. And, and another, kind of just his MO, but, failing in interesting ways. But also, I see so much in this movie. Mm -hmm later movies that find those answers like the shining mm -hmm. or portrait of a lady on fire yeah right like yeah these are very different movies but both <laughs> of those movies answer tackle a sing like one of the questions that this movie brings up and actually answers it and i'm like i i don't know right like part of me is kind of like well i don't want to give it to this movie because it it doesn't succeed in the way that those do but at the same time because it... I, I do really like this movie if somebody was like, hey, out of all of the movies you've watched, I would probably point them to this one out of all of them, even mm -hmm. though I'm kind of wishy-washy on it. It's definitely the easiest to watch of all of them. I just think it's them. very consumable. I think at the end of the day, right, like the point the point mm -hmm. of an Oscar or the point of an award-winning movie is saying, is this a movie that is speaking to, that is speaking to a moment that is universal? Or is this a movie that is worth thinking about? And I My think answer it, to the both of those questions is, is yes. yes. And so I think on that merit, I think it gets it. I think it gets the Oscar. Barely managed. It like it wins by like a hair. If we were playing shuffleboard, it'd be 10 points. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, but it does. Yeah, you're right. Uh, um, I guess I'm right too. It does. It does both of those things. So tell me in this movie, what was your favorite scene? Ooh, what was my favorite scene in this movie? I guess 
I know what my favorite scene is in this movie because I keep quoting it, <laughs> which is uh, I kind of do like I like Max's confession scene. Again, mm-hmm. I just think it's it's the climax of the film. So it's good that it's kind of one of the strongest scenes in the movie. But it's not my favorite because my favorite scene is um, the scene between Danvers and the narrator in Rebecca's bedroom. Mm-hmm. It is so fucking frightening from beginning to end. Yeah. What about you? Uh, my favorite scene, my favorite build up to a scene is narrator is like, I want to throw a costume ball. Yeah. And um, oh my God, yeah. they're trying to come up with a costume. And Danvers, I don't know why she would trust Danvers after a- that everything scene, but whatever is like you should dress up like this third cousin she was beautiful apparently none of their paintings have plaques you can read and because narrator is an idiot is like that sounds great i surely don't think you're a freak after everything we've been through and just you as an audience assuming knows that even if you don't assume that it's Rebecca, you know something is wrong with this because Danvers is a fucking weirdo. But also, the f- this is this part of the movie is shot like a horror scene. And just the, the trepidation of like seeing them get closer and closer, and then it shoots them at the top of the stairs, and everyone else is facing away from them. So you know when they turn around, there is going to be a not positive reaction. Like, oh, I almost and- had to like pause the movie, like close my eyes because i was filled with such anxiety over how bad this was gonna go we joked about it when she was like you should dress up like this portrait and we were like god wouldn't it be hilarious if that was just a portrait of rebecca Rebecca? and then very quickly that joke turned to dread like oh Oh, no no. (laughs) that portrait is rebecca (laughs) you want to know how old yeah how old these actors were so Another easy one, I think. Well, in terms of just like looking up ages, I had to look up like four people, thankfully. Uh, let's start with Joan Fontaine, who plays the narrator. Um, the well, I know they're not 36. Madame de Winters 2. They seem pretty young. Not, not super young. I'm going to say they are like 30 on the dot. I'm going to give you a little bit of a hint. Oh. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you... I've had this fun fact in my back pocket. Joan Fontaine's sister is Olivia de Havilland, who played the gift given unto the Confederacy in Gone with the Wind. That's so that's her older sister. Huh. I assume she's younger yes. than... I will say she is 29. <laughs> I don't like swaying from my original guesses. No, I know. I just... Uh, I wanted to tell you that first and I forgot, but... um. I don't know, she just doesn't strike me as being, like, in her youthful 20s, but I could be wrong. For sure. She was born in 1917, which would have made her 23 at the time. Oh, dang. She was in her youthful 20s. She I guess was... she's just hideous. <laughs> Sorry, I just really wanted to make that sure. Wow. That's so mean. Um, she's not as beautiful as Rebecca as was. As Rebecca was. And then we have Laurence Olivier, Maxim de Winters himself. Uh... He was going to have a very long career gonna have a very long career i want i mean i want him to be to be young and he doesn't seem to be that old i don't think we've seen him in anything else i'm gonna say that he's 26 so Lawrence olivier was born in 1907 which makes him 10 years older at 33 mm-hmm. um which kind of makes this age appropriate casting for the film yeah because in the film it is implied that he's, he's in his 30s and she is in her 20s yeah which part of her youthful splendor <laughs> So on on the one hand, 
good. On the other hand, ugh. It was a it was a thing we were talking about, like in the movie, it was implying that there was an age gap, and we we're like, it doesn't look, look like that. there's a, yeah. an age gap. Uh, yeah, I also have a real baby face for a a dude <laughs> with a voice that sounds like this. So, uh, in a way, I guess I'm a lot like Laurence Olivier, which is that I don't look as old as I do. In a way, I guess I'm a lot like Laurence Olivier too. And that you don't look as old. We're both like Laurence Olivier. We love Shakespeare. Uh, he's fine. He's all right. Who who are you? Me. Yeah. I'm Andres Reyes. You can find me on Twitter at royalty underscore Valens. You can find me at my other podcast at direct2.video, where we just wrapped up a couple of Pokemon films, and we're about to get started on Buzz Lightyear, the Buzz Lightyear cinematic universe. You're welcome for my suggestion. It was it was a genius suggestion. I've been your critic, Mavis Evergreen. You can find me at Mavis Evergreen on Twitter. And that's basically all I do. <laughs> so what's the next movie we're watching? We are going to be watching, oh man, <laughs> The Grapes of Wrath. Aww. Our moments of like good movies are so short. So yeah, we are we are entering the John Ford era. No. Because we're going to get another one by him after that. Uh, back to back Ford. Forward and backward. Forward and backward. I guess that's it. And uh, remember, only date virgins. <laughs> <laughs> no. I refuse. <laughs> um, And uh, remember, not all women are evil, but all tiny golden statues are evil. <laughs>